Welcome to Fishing Forward, a podcast inspired by fishermen for fishermen that focuses on health, safety, and staying ship shape in the commercial fishing industry. Fishing Forward is brought to you by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety, by the Coastal Rose Radio Team at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, and at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. And I'm Phil Loring. In this podcast, we're exploring how fishermen can be thought of as professional fishing athletes. That is, that the nature of their work demands the same high level of mental focus, training, and physical acuity that one might expect from a professional sports athlete. Throughout this series, we're using that lens to understand the many facets of fishermen's minds, bodies, and well-being, and we're digging deep into tough questions around issues critical to the fishing industry. In this episode, we're bringing you a longer form listen because we're going to focus on one of the most serious situations a sailor can face, survival at sea. Whether because of a crew member falling overboard or a vessel going down, having fishermen or any sailor in the water is a worst case scenario. Today, we're bringing you perspectives from three very different voices who will talk about cultures of safety, share a story of survival after a crew overboard incident, and bring us some hopeful news about getting fishermen into life jackets. We're going to start with a trip south to Texas. So I'm Father Sinclair Ube. I'm a Catholic priest of the Diocese of Beaumont. I work as the uh, uh, Apostleship of the Sea or Stella Maris minister in the diocese, taking care of the people of the sea, whether that's merchant mariners, fishermen, or whatever. I'm also a U.S. merchant mariner, having held uh, my AB credentials for 20, 30 years now, as well as a small 100-ton near-coastal license. Aside from his experience as a merchant mariner, Father Sinclair has experience working with the fishing fleets in his area, which include communities of Vietnamese fishermen who came to the U.S. as refugees after the Vietnam War. Regular listeners may remember hearing about this community in episode 14. So with these diverse experiences, I'm very curious how Father Sinclair sees attention to safety in the fishing industry. I remember my first job as a merchant mariner working in work boats going out to the drilling rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, if the captain said, put on your work vest, we put on our work vests. Uh, I remember as they were trying to lower the, the uh, fuel hoses down from the rig onto the deck, which has a large 25-pound metal fitting on the end of it, uh, him hollering at us to get out from underneath the load because you tend to sort of cluster, as it's coming down, you tend to sort of cluster together. It becomes very clear that the the culture of safe that safety becomes very important and is established on the boat itself. And what's frustrating, which I think is prevalent in the fishing community in general, is the idea that we 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 don't need any of this stuff. We just got to get it done. We do these safety trainings, but we have to do the safety training not because we're going to actually do safety training on the boat, but because the Coast Guard requires that somebody in the boat has gone to the training course. So we send somebody over there, but we're never going to actually put on a life jacket. We're never going to actually get in a gumby suit. We're never actually going to practice what we have to do for an abandoned ship drill. We just have to do it. Now, that, part of that's legislative, too, because there's no logs that have to be kept in this process as if you have to do it. You're supposed to do it. But on the merchant marine side, you have to keep a log because you're you're an inspected vessel. You've got to keep a log on this. And the Coast Guard will inspect your vessel. And they're not only looking for mechanical and safety gear, but they're going to check that log. And they're going to see if you have been performing these tasks. And that's that's missing within the fishing community itself. And because of that, 
it depends on the on the captain. I, I, I read National Fishermen and I read stories of, of boats getting in trouble. And if they have packing go, goes in the shaft and the engine room is flooded and the boat's going down in five minutes, they're able to get in their gumby suit and get in the life raft and do it. Uh, we had a boat that ran into the jetties just outside of Sabine Pass here. And it was an absolute cluster because the guys had never used their safety equipment or had any clue that was there. We had a, another situation in which a Vietnamese captain had a heart attack, I believe it was, and died. And the rest of the crew had no idea how to use the microphone, how to run the ship, how to steer the vessel or anything. All that knowledge was contained in one place. And so when that one person ceased to be there, no one knew what to do at that point. Some of Father Sinclair's comments here remind me of earlier episodes where we've heard about the slow change in safety culture that fishermen have observed in their fleets. Yeah, I was also reminded of that. And I think Father Sinclair actually has a pretty good explanation. In our conversation, he laid out what he sees as a culture of safety that must be established in order to have a safe onboard working environment. And from his view, the captain of the vessel, or perhaps even the leader of an organization, is ultimately responsible for establishing and maintaining that culture. It's a prioritization where you will do it this way or you will not be working here. One of the one of the merchant marine companies I worked with was Crowley, and they had a rule in uh, Lake Charles and also in Jacksonville that when you weren't on the boat, you had to wear a reflective vest as you're walking around because they're moving trucks and, and trailers all around all the time. Forklifts are going, all this stuff. And you had to wear that. And if you were on the dock, and we're not wearing that, they would fire you. Well, you know, even the not so bright AB understood that maybe I should wear this reflective vest. So I think it's absolutely stupid, but I'll wear it at that point. And that's a culture that begins to take effect. It, it's not just an arbitrary thing, but it, it's like it starts from the top and goes to the bottom. But on the other hand, when I first started my maritime career back in 1978, safety was a sticker on the helmet that you had to pay for to get. And there was no training on that safety. And safety was never going to get in the way of hurry up and get this job done. And so people got crushed and people got killed or people worked way past any level of hours that were necessary. And so on a perfectly, the, I'm thinking of the, the Seabolt Georgia, on a perfectly clear night, this uh, OSV runs into a jackup rig in the Gulf of Mexico probably because the mate on watch had been up for 30 hours and fell asleep. I really like this idea of a culture of safety. I think we both, Hannah, seen people who are safety conscious, yet sometimes still take risks. Absolutely. And I think as Father Sinclair explains, it seems that those choices to take that risk can often revolve around their perceptions of that risk. And so you've got you've got 7,599 foot shrimp boats. They've got outriggers that drop off to the side, and and that holds open the front of the net and stuff. So there was some kind of a of a rigging problem on, on one of the outriggers, and so the uh, the the captain crawls out on the boom and starts working on it and falls off and falls in the water and swims back to the boat, gets on the boat and goes back out there again and falls off and then swims back to the boat and then the third time he goes out there works on the Briggs falls off and he doesn't come back. And we lost him at that point. The idea of wearing a life jacket, but then it's like, well, it's going to be hot. It's going to be cumbersome. It's going to get caught up, you know, and I'm just going out there just really quick and we'll be right back. And all those types of things work against that culture of safety. Mm -hmm. 
Let's go now to hear from a lobsterman who has firsthand experience with the importance of flotation and how easily accidents can happen. My name's John Aldridge. I'm uh, a Montauk lobster fisherman. I've been fishing um, in the fisheries for about probably 30 years now. You know, we fish out of Montauk, New York, uh, Area 3, which is the furthest offshore from uh, Long Island here in New York. I'm basically the only boat in in the state that fishes out that far where we are here. This is the way the whole structure of the fisheries all work out. Most of the boats are out of Rhode Island and Massachusetts and Connecticut. Um, We're just a little fishing community at the tip of Long Island where uh, we're still holding fast there. So, When John says he fishes far out, he means 50 to 60 miles offshore, which in his boat is about an eight or nine hour trip. Normally, he and his crew sail out fish for 24 to 36 hours, and then steam back home. His crew is composed of himself and two other guys. And like we discussed in a previous episode, he says that finding crew is a continuous challenge. It's hard, you know, like anything, to keep crew, to find people to to work, especially where we are in the Hamptons. It's very, uh, you know, the cost of living is beyond. And uh, it's hard to find people to, uh, to be able to even live out there to to do what we do. So uh, it's it's difficult. John's fishery has a relatively quick time if you compare it to some other fisheries, which means that someone is usually always awake to make the most of their time at sea. Usually, I mean, for us, it's like, you know, we have a small boat. Usually there's always more than one person awake. Uh, The life jacket use is, I would say, pretty minimal, uh, you know, um, not for me, of course, because I know better now, but um, I try to... uh, wear one of those vests that a flotation device the uh i think kent makes it or something and that seems to be pretty comfortable for me especially in the winter time um but you know if the crew was setting out to have the crew wear a life jacket as much as possible it's it's difficult to, to convince these people to uh on a flat calm day and it's all but you know it's like complacency kills with all we know about how life jackets save lives why is it still tough to get people to wear them? You know what? That is a great question. The million dollar question of this episode, really. But as John describes it, one reason might be linked to that feeling of toughness that is sometimes pervasive in the fishing industry. I just think it's not even a thought. You know, uh, I guess in a sense, you know, being a fisherman, you feel, you know, indestructible. You feel like, you know, you're, you know, you're tougher than everybody else. So, you know, however that works um, and pro- and not as smart, obviously, because <laughs> not a lot of people are wearing them. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a fine line, you know, and then it has to be the individual that wants to, to that knows better. Now, John kindly agreed to join us in this episode because he is a survivor of a man overboard incident. We're going to divert from our regular format here and turn over the next little while to John to tell his story in full, uninterrupted. A quick content warning that this story does talk about survival at sea, and I'll be the first to tell you that some listeners may find it a little bit stressful to hear it. In 2013, we were leaving on a typical fishing trip for us um, out of Montauk. Uh, about eight o'clock at night, we had gotten fuel, ice, food and all that and shaped up. And, uh, it was the three of us on the boat, uh, me and my fishing partner and one other crew member. And we, you know, set off at eight o'clock at night. It was, uh, July 24th. 
so the water is very hot and where we fish is really hot out there 78 degrees on the surface um, we have refrigeration systems on the boat so uh you know we, we we left that night with the first trip of the season using this refrigeration system so i figured you know since i'm basically the engineer on the boat i needed to get that situated and and set up so uh as we left i told the crew go lay down and i'll wake you up you know a couple hours and you know we'll uh rotate so basically i was about six hours from land and uh i figured all right i'm gonna get the refrigeration going here and then i'll go take a nap and we'll still have a couple more hours till we get there and then the tanks will be cold and you know everything work out fine so uh, everybody was asleep down below i'm on deck we have an open stern on our boat and there was two coolers on top of one of the uh tank hatches that i had to get into to get access to um and so i took a uh about a three foot box hook and i hooked it into the coolers plastic handles um and i pulled with all my might to get the cooler off that top of the hatch and with that the handle had snapped and with the force i was pulling with it sent me falling backwards and i ended up falling out of the back of the boat about 45 miles from land 2 30 in the morning uh, boats on autopilot doing about six and a half seven knots and that was it game on um you know the second i hit the water i knew i was screwed i knew you know the boats on autopilot the crew's asleep you know today's the day you're gonna die um and um panic 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 as i get back up and look you know there's the boat going away in the distance and i um just about uh expelled all my energy because i was freaking out and i realized that my boots were very buoyant so i kicked my boots off and i grabbed them and just to hold on to them and uh catch a breath and when i did that i don't know something clicked in my head and i said wow i could think i can make these more buoyant i emptied the water out of the boots and created an air pocket and put one on the each arm and uh you know for the 10 minutes after i fell in i was uh i was pretty secure in my flotation but knowing that you know you're in the middle of the ocean and no one even knows you're missing so you you know you're in a slow death spiral the boat went away uh so it was pitch black a little bit of a moon about a four foot swell so it wasn't flat it wasn't calm and um i just was freaking out and i had to come to the realization that you know you're gonna either live or you're gonna die you know and i was floating i wasn't drowning at the moment i was able to stay afloat and not have to fight to stay afloat uh exert all that energy so it was so overwhelming um you know everything going on oh my god i'm gonna die you know is there sharks is the you know but immediately hitting the water i had storm petrels attacking me i don't know why i don't know how, you know but immediately i had birds dive bombing me and trying and pecking at me and trying to get at me. i don't know um that was something new in the ocean so that was right off the bat dealing with that swatting them away um trying to hold on to the boots floating you know so then you know you're in your head a lot and you're freaking out and you can't believe you're in this situation it's so overwhelming that i uh i basically had to break it down into small little goals i told myself 
all you got to do is stay alive to daylight, stay alive to daylight. And when daylight comes, we'll figure it out from there. You know, I, I kind of knew where I was in the ocean where I fell in, in relation to other people's fishing gear. Um, so I kind of knew I was in an area where there were buoys. That was my goal when the daylight came was to find a high flyer and a buoy and try to get to that because who lives in the middle of the ocean? There's no way you're going to survive. And so once I committed to that goal of staying alive to daylight, it was like right off the bat, I had two sharks swim up, uh, two, two blue sharks, I would imagine. Um, and they were circling me and I had whipped out my little three inch pocket knife and I was standing there, you know, floating there. And I'm watching them about 10 feet away, going around, looking and, you know, and then I, I just said to myself, all right, these things, I got to just calm my breathing. I got to calm my breath. I can't be panicking. And I just went inside my head and just like calmed myself and just created a calm calmness. And uh, whether they swam away or they were hanging off of me, I didn't see them anymore. So that was, you know, somewhat of a relief, but always knowing that they're there or back of your head, you know, you just had to block all of that stuff away because they would just consume you thinking about that. So uh, I guess so then a couple hours went by, you know, knowing you're floating in the middle of the ocean at night and nobody in the world knows you're missing is, is crazy in your head. And uh, you just got to keep pushing that away, pushing that away and telling yourself that, you know, you just got to stay alive to daylight and we'll figure it out. Daylight came and I guess about an hour into daylight, I heard the thumping of a helicopter way, way off in the distance. And I knew then that, you know, they were awake on the boat because I knew as soon as they woke up and didn't see me on board, they were going to freak out and, and call the Coast Guard and you know, get something going here, uh, which is exactly what happened. John's boat was about 20 miles from where he fell overboard when his crewmates woke up and realized that he was missing. They radioed the Coast Guard and a search for John began. In the water, John is also working on his own plan to survive and be found. Uh, you know, I mean, I, now daylight comes and I'm saying, all right, I got to look for a high flyer. I got to look for a buoy. I got to look for something to float on because he can't be just floating around. So now I guess now I'm in the water f five, four, five hours now. Um, in the morning there, I look for a buoy and there's one way off in the distance. So I start swimming towards it with my boots. I got one arm holding both boots and one arm I'm swimming with as I'm kicking. And, and every 15 minutes or so, I rotate arms, empty the boots out with the water, create an air pocket back in and put them under my arms and then start swimming again with the other arm. And I did that and did that. And I finally got close to one of the buoys. And I realized that I didn't calculate the current. I didn't calculate that, you know, the whole ocean's moving. Those are stationary. And I couldn't really get to the to the buoy. I was I was exerting so much energy to get there. And I had a I had a bail on it. And I said, all right, but I knew that it was an east end buoy because our west ends have a flag on it. So I knew that if I just went with the current to the west, I would fall down on another buoy eventually, a mile away, half a mile away, whatever the trawl length would be there. And that's what I did. I ended up seeing another high flyer an hour or so later, um, and I swam in a, in a direction to uh, 
to fall down onto that. Um, and eventually I grabbed it, got it. And I realized that holding on to that, you know, with this four foot swell, I'm getting pulled underneath the water. The waves are just going right over the top of me. And it re and I really couldn't get on top of the, I couldn't get on top of anything. I couldn't hold, I was doing better off floating with my boots than I was holding on to that thing. So I took out my pocket knife and I cut the, the, the ball off the big buoy, the poly ball, and I tied it around my wrist and I just started, you know, going in the direction of where the hel helicopter was searching, which was more to the west. I kept seeing the helicopter going back and forth, but nowhere near me. And eventually I saw another lobster boat um, that fishes next to us and I saw him go by and he didn't see me. Um, and then in about an hour or so later, I saw my boat go by and they didn't see me. So each time, you know, with that, you know, it weighs on you and you're like, you know, oh, my God, I can't believe they didn't see me. Am I going to die? You know, and then I, I, I realized to myself that anything negative is just going to bring me down. And it was so powerful how the negative feeling, uh, you know, was just overpowering and it would it would make you want to die. You know, it was almost telling you it's easy to die. Just take a couple of breaths and you don't have to be suffering no more. It's easy. And it's like that really scared me that that, you know, the mind could think that. And uh, I just turned off that whole negative part of me and focused on the positive. And I said to myself, you know what? They didn't just see me, but they're still out here looking for me. And I'm going to work with that angle instead of the oh, my God, they didn't see me angle. And it really empowered me. Um, and I just kept thinking in that positive way and it just made me stronger and stronger and, and, and more hopeful. So they're not seeing me. No one's seeing me. You know, I'm in the middle of the ocean here. Um, I'm trying to do my best to get into the search pattern where the, where the helicopter keeps going back and forth. And they, so I keep swimming in the direction of them with the ball and my boots. And, uh, eventually I find another high flyer and buoy. And it's, I know it's getting late. I mean, I've been in the water probably 10 hours now. Um, I've been watching the sun and I see how, you know, I could somewhat tell what time of the day it is. And I see that it's definitely, you know, we're on the other side of noon here. And um, I got to come up with a plan. Like, what's going to go on? I'm going to have to, am I going to live through the night here? Am I going to be in the middle of the ocean at night? And I uh, I grabbed that high flyer and I, I t ended up tying both of the big poly balls together and made like a little seat in between with the rope. And, uh, I sat there and I said, this is where I'm going to end up. I knew it was my friend Pete's gear. I knew that eventually if I did deteriorate, I would tie myself to it and he would have, you know, at least they find my body and they'd have an answer or something that I, you know, I, I did something or made it somewhere or whatever. But, um, so I figured, let me just sit there. And I sat there for, I guess, another hour or two. And eventually the helicopter um, did a pit. Did a, first, they saw a, a um, Coast Guard uh, jet go by relatively close. And I, I don't know if he saw me. I don't, you know, it was kind of. So he went by. And then I said, all right, I know he's coming back on a pattern. So I just kept looking in that direction. And sure enough, he came back through. And I'm like, wow, he's pretty close. He might have seen me. So that gave me hope. And then I guess within 40 minutes later, 
a helicopter comes right down the line and I started freaking out, yelling, screaming, waving, splashing. And then they seen me and they, they hovered off of me um, to get the rescue swimmer ready. I was on the, I was still on the, on the high flyer and the wash was just unbelievable. Uh, so I had my back turned to the whole situation. I just waited until someone swam up to me and let me know what's going on. And as the rescue swimmer swam up to me, tapped me on the shoulder, I turn around and he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I told him, I go, I got two more days left in me. Let's get the hell out of here. And he couldn't believe that I you know, said something like that. Um, so he knew I was pretty secure in myself and I was doing okay. Um, and he's like, you know, don't worry. Well, you know, we're out of here. And within a second, the basket fell right next to me and they rolled me into the basket. I had my boots that went up with me. And, uh, as I got in the helicopter, you know, as I get in the helicopter, they tell me, you know, we've been down here nine, we've been up here nine hours looking for you. And I was like, well, I've been down there 12 hours looking for you. So, you know, he's like, we can't bring you back to Montauk, but we could bring you back to Cape Cod where we're based. And I, you know, obviously I don't care where you bring me as long as we're, <laughs> we're safe. Wow. That is an incredible and nerve wracking story. One thing that really stands out to me in it is John's recounting of how often he had to turn inward, really focus on maintaining a positive mentality to survive. Yeah, I was also really struck by that. John said that for him, the mental struggle was really just as important as the physical struggle in staying alive. Uh, it was mainly a mental game over the deterioration of your physical part of you you know trying to keep fighting off the uh the physical deterioration of your body um you know being hypothermic being my had i had second degree sunburn on my face from being on the surface of the water my when i got out of the water my core temperature was 94 degrees so i only had basically like you know the degree or two before no matter how mentally strong you are you're losing physical ability and i think that my boots did more than save me by floating. I think because they were against my chest, the water inside the boots were heating up like a wetsuit. So that helped my core, you know, cause I don't, I weigh 160 pounds, 150 pounds. Um, I have no insulation from the 71 degree water I was in, which is, you know, somewhat nice, but it's, you wouldn't go in your pool at 71 degrees, you know, it's cold. You know, we've heard a lot about how fishermen can be affected by PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder after a traumatic event at work. After surviving his fall overboard, how did John cope with that experience? You know, for John, he actually felt relatively mentally unaffected by the experience, um, but that wasn't necessarily true for those around him. It was kind of weird because <laughs> everybody around me was so affected. It seemed like everybody that was involved and knew me had more PTSD going on than I did. For me, it, I was like, you know, I was challenged. I, I lived up to the challenge and uh, let's move on and let me keep going. You know, um, I didn't really process it too much. I mean, uh, the second I was in the hospital, they were interviewing me. So I've, I, I was telling the story from the minute I got rescued to today, you know, nine years later. Um, and it's almost like every day I've been speaking around the country, you know, in Mexico and in the war, you know, all around. And so I think that helped me process it better. 
you know, I, I guess in, I had some manifestations of uh, PTSD a couple of years afterwards where I'd out of nowhere, you know, hurt myself three times in one summer, um, you know, once on land and twice on the boat out of nowhere. I ended up losing the tip of my finger in the hauler, uh, getting stitches, you know, for like, like stuff that you know, I've done a thousand times. And it's like, well, you know, what's going on here? Why am I? You know, and then I figured it would probably, you know, everything coming to a head PTSD wise. But for the most part, I've never had a not, I've never had a, a nightmare about it. I don't dwell on the bad parts of it. I try to stay as positive as I can and, and you know, work that way at that angle of it, because it's just, you know, it's way more empowering than than to be negative. So it really made a difference. Today, John is still a fisherman, but there have been a few changes to his boat. For one, they have installed a tailgate on the boat, so no more open stern. I'll hand it over to John to describe the others. And in the beginning, I had had this device that, you know, you clip onto you when you're on watch, and if you fell from the boat 75 feet, it would it would scream an alarm. Um, you know, trying to get the crew to use that. It's, it's a personal choice, and everybody's got to make that personal choice. And, uh, you know, you got to want to live. You know, I mean, I, I don't think anybody wants to go through what I went through. I mean, physically or mentally. And, you know, from what I understand, you know, the Coast Guard told me there's only 3% of people who have ever lived through something like I've lived, you know, falling off the boat in the middle of the night. No one's ever seen you in the North Atlantic. It's like they're like it's unheard of. We don't ever find bodies, let alone a live body. So, you know, to take that chance, it's just not worth it. Now, in this podcast, we're always interested to bring forward solutions to the challenges that we highlight in commercial fishing, safety, and well-being. In thinking about John's story, one might ask, why wasn't he wearing a life jacket when he fell overboard? What would have happened if he didn't have his boots to buoy him through his ordeal? Well, we want to end today with a story about a research team that is looking into that very question and has come up with some really interesting solutions. My name is Julie Sorensen. I'm affiliated with the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety, and we work with farmers, forestry workers, and fishermen and loggers. So I'm the director of the center, but I also am a principal investigator on a variety of occupational health and safety studies. Dr. Sorensen and other researchers at the Northeast Center have, over the past few years, been working with fishermen in the Northeastern United States to try to improve safety outcomes in the commercial fishing industry. One of their research projects included taking a closer look at the reasons that fishermen sometimes don't want to wear life jackets or PFDs, personal flotation devices. We realized years back that we needed to do more with the fishing community to address injury and fatality uh, because commercial fisheries have the highest fatality rate of any industry in the United States. So we thought a little bit about what what is the the issue that we should probably tackle first. And uh, if you look at deaths in the lobster fishing industry or or actually just the fishing industry uh, on the East Coast and Northeast, falls overboard deaths are the most frequent cause of death in commercial fisheries. Now that that could be a, a 
fall overboard could be because, you know, somebody slipped and fell off the the back of the boat. Uh, They were entangled in lines. I mean, there are a number of reasons, but the one thing that uh, connects all of those precipitating factors is drowning. And so uh, in looking at the data, we realized that it shows that most of the people who have died in a falls overboard who drowned were not wearing a life jacket. So it seemed like given the numbers, that would be the best place to start. To start looking into life jacket use, Dr. Sorensen and a team of researchers began conducting interviews with fishermen in Massachusetts, and they asked them about their concerns, their fears of drowning, and about their life jacket use. And fishermen were great. They, they, you know, uh, they pointed out that uh, there are a number of factors that make wearing a life jacket very difficult. So number one, uh, can you work in it? It limits your your range of motion. Uh, concerns about entanglement. If I were wearing a life jacket, would I more likely to be caught in a trap as it's going out or line? And what kind of safety concern does that, you know, create? Also, uh, the comfort was a big issue. They also talked about some social issues. Uh, so one of the things that they talked about were, you know, if you were a new person, if you were the new guy in a crew and you're on a fishing boat, uh, they would make you often wear a life jacket because you're new, you don't know what you're doing. So there's a bit of a stigma, right? Because you're the greenie, you know, you're the new guy, so you have to wear the life jacket. So, uh, you know, it's kind of look down up upon. And, you know, when I have talked to captains, it, it's interesting because what they've pointed out is, you know, I'm often in the wheelhouse. So if I'm wearing a life jacket, and I'm in the wheelhouse, everyone's going to look at me like <laughs> I'm weird. Like, you know, what, why do you need a life jacket? You're sitting there in the wheelhouse. But then again, the captain sets the tone for the ship, right? So, um, you know, if the captain's wearing it, you know, maybe other people would wear it. I think in general, what we found was comfort was an issue and concerns about safety and then just you know people weren't wearing them so if you look around you and no one else is doing it it's a little weird you know for you to do it so that study was very helpful in helping us to understand the lay of the land so like we heard earlier captains do set the example or the culture of safety on a vessel but there are a number of barriers to fishermen being willing to wear a life jacket full time Yeah, and surprisingly, Dr. Sorensen's team found that one unexpected challenge of even getting a life jacket at all is that many marine supply stores only offer one or two types of life jackets. And they're quite often those big, orange, bulky kinds, and and they're uncomfortable or difficult to work in sometimes. When her team asked about why those stores only offer those options, they found that store owners sometimes just couldn't justify offering other choices since fishermen rarely purchase the life jackets at all. So it's a sort of chicken and an egg scenario of people not having access to or reason to sell comfortable and ergonomic life jackets. So what we realized, we we, we needed to find some options that fishermen could use and then demonstrate to local commercial marine suppliers that there is interest in life jackets if you find the right kind. So that's when we launched this project, which started off by going out to the ports with a variety of life jackets. Actually, I think we started out with nine or 10. And those life jackets were actually 
identified by uh, fishermen who attended the uh, Massachusetts Lobsterman Fishermen's Association meetings or the Maine Lobsterman's Association fishing meetings. And they helped us narrow it down to these nine or 10 varieties. And then what we did was we, you know, loaded up bands, brought them out to ports and said, hey, you know what? We're going to assign this life jacket to you and we're going to have you try this for four to six weeks and we're going to pay you to do it. And then you tell us after that four to six weeks, could you work in it? You know, did it get in the way? Was it an entanglement hazard? What are the things you liked or didn't like about it? So in offering this variety of life jackets, did Dr. Sorensen's team find that fishermen preferred one style over another? No, actually, which was a somewhat surprising result of the study. They found that preference for a particular type of life jacket was quite variable and often quite personal. And I think if we think back to one of our very earliest episodes, we heard from Eric Jordan, a fisherman out in Alaska, and he was talking about outfitting his boat for all sizes of crew. And with that in mind, this finding actually starts to make sense. A life jacket that is comfortable for a fisherman who's, say, six foot three and does one type of fishing may not be the same style that's going to work on a fisherman who's, say, five foot six and does a totally different type of fishing. And the type of flotation itself was also an important variable. You know, everybody wanted something different. So some people wanted inherent flotation. Some people wanted manual. Some people wanted hydrostatic flotation. Some people wanted, you know, a waist belt. Some some wanted the flotation built into the bibs of the, you know, because lobster fishermen wear those anyway, and you didn't have to think about putting it on. Okay, so if life jacket preference is so individual, how do you get the right kinds of life jacket options to fishermen? That is a great question. And the answer is, in this case, the Life Jackets for Lobstermen program. I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Sorensen to explain how they did it. We thought, well, why don't we create a van and get the community involved and bring out all these options from port to port and give people 50% off a life jacket. And while we're out there, we could, you know, we, we had this thing called try before the buy. So as fishermen came off their boats and walked past the van, we'd say, try out what's here. We, you know, we have a bunch of demos, put it on, walk around. Is it comfortable? Does it, you know, do you think it works for you? And then, you know, if they felt like, oh yeah, this is something, this is something I could wear while I was, you know, working on the boat, then they could buy it at a 50% reduced price. And the nice thing about that, too, is we had a lot of time to interact with the fishermen and talk to them about, you know, their thoughts about life jackets or other health and safety concerns that they had. Um, and the thing that was really wonderful to see is fishermen would show up at the vans with their families, like their their wives would, you know, they'd say, well, my, my wife made me come down here and buy this life jacket or, you know, they'd bring their kids, you know, and, and the kids would be, you know go dad, go get, you know, get a life jacket, do it for us. Or, or, you know, I remember seeing fishermen who, um, you know, had older members of the family working on the boat and they were worried about grandpa out there on the boat without a life jacket. Through this program, Dr. Sorensen and her team distributed about 1200 life jackets to lobstermen in Maine and Massachusetts. You know, another neat thing about this program, I think, is the conversations that the research team were able to have with fishermen about their safety concerns. In fact, some of those conversations were the inspiration for the topics we've covered in this podcast. Yes, they were. 
Now, while the initial life jackets for lobstermen program may now be finished, Dr. Sorensen says that this model of delivering life jackets to fishermen who need them has carried on. So once we we took these life jacket bans out into the lobster fishing community and realized that you know, under the right circumstances, fishermen did want life jackets. We wanted to continue that momentum. And so we worked with our terrific partners at the Fishing and Partnership Support Services offices to ensure that that, uh, the life jacket ban could continue to be available to the fishing community. And so what they have done is combine the life jacket ban with their safety at sea and drill conductor trainings. So now uh, when they go out to do a training in, a, in a various ports, they bring the life jacket band with them. And then fishermen who are participating in that training uh, can try on the life jackets, get some feedback about the different options, and then uh, they can still get 50% off a life jacket. The only difference is they can't purchase it right at the van. They have to purchase it from a commercial marine supplier, and then they get a rebate voucher, and then we pay them back. And I think the reason for that is we wanted to make sure that we supported commercial marine suppliers in their willingness to now carry these additional options for fishermen. And I think by building that into um, the local business structure and, and, and the local communities, it has a lot more potential for sustainability. Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, you heard from Dr. Julie Sorensen, Director of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety, from Father Sinclair Uber, Director of the Apostleship of the Sea and Pastor at St. Francis of Assisi Catholic Church, and from Fisherman John Aldrich, co-author of A Speck in the Sea a story of survival and rescue. You can find a link to John's book in the show notes of this episode. Fishing Forward is a production of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and Coastal Roots Radio at Dalhousie University and the University of Guelph. We love to hear your feedback. You can share your thoughts with us via email at fishing at necenter.org or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 607-221-4448. You can also visit us on the Fishing Forward podcast webpage at www.coastalroots.org slash fishingforwardpod. Though we do our best to bring you accurate information and lived experiences in this podcast, please remember that all of the health-related information presented here is the opinion of the interviewees and should not be interpreted as licensed medical advice. As always, talk to your physician about your own health needs and circumstances. Fishing Forward is funded by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. We also receive support from the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, Oregon State University, Fishing Partnership Support Services, Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the NORA Agriculture, Forestry, and Fishing Council, the Southwest Center for Agricultural Health, Injury Prevention and Education, and the Local Catch Network. Safe sailing. Safe sailing.